Hello and welcome to the Quadcast. My name is John McAlevey. The Quadcast is your weekly 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. This podcast is mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, but is really for anyone that just wants to be inspired. We have reached episode number 14, which also happens to be my favorite number, so that's way cool. Let me first thank last week's guest, Dr. Trevor Dyson Hudson. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation as much as I had having it. Dr. Trevor is an amazing guy, and I am so proud to call him my friend. Well, we have reached September. How did that happen? Summer is slipping through our fingers, or in my case, fists. Ha ha. I swear the older I get, the faster it goes. July usually takes a little time to get through, but once August rolls around, summer gets in the left-hand lane and puts the pedal to the metal. And speaking of getting into the fast lane and stepping on it, today is our Getting Back on the Road Again episode. How was that for a segue? Yeah, I thought it was pretty good myself. For those of you who have been consumers of the quadcast from the beginning, you'll know that regaining the ability to walk, climb stairs, feed myself, dress myself, etc. took precedence. For the better part of the first year following my accident, days were full trying to master stuff like this, or as the occupational therapists call them, ADLs, the activities of daily living. Now, much of this was accomplished as an outpatient at Kessler. And while both of my parents were working as well as my sister, tremendous friends and neighbors took turns driving me to and from therapy. Mrs. Murray, Mrs. Tobin, Mr. Marr, Mrs. Yauk, and many more each had a day to pick up or drop off the package, which was me. I could never thank these great people enough. However, there came a time when I wanted to drive myself. Good grief, before even thinking of working the gas or brake with my feet or trying to steer a car again, I wasn't sure whether I could even open a car door again in the first place. Was driving again really doable for me? It sure was, and thank goodness for that. What getting behind the wheel again gave me was what I truly craved, complete independence. That first time I got into my modified car with no one else around to crank up the radio and set out for wherever the heck I was going was a very special moment for me. One I will never forget, in fact, because Johnny Mac was back. Joining me today to help us understand exactly what it takes to safely and legally drive a car and or van again following a catastrophic injury is Rich Need, Certified Driver Rehabilitation Specialist at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in West Orange. Rich is a great guy, terrific at what he does, and he's helped me through the process twice. He also has had the opportunity to work with my wonderful father, who I am quite sure talked his ears off about sports and, of course, New York State apples. God, I miss that guy. For those of you who have never been to Kessler or passed by the facility in West Orange, it sits on a rather large hill. And as the driving instructor, it is Rich's job to ride shotgun with folks who have had spinal cord injuries, amputations, and strokes down that rather large hill and around neighboring streets in order to evaluate whether they are roadworthy again. And after we speak with Rich, Peter Ruprecht, the owner of DriveMaster Total Mobility Center, will hop on board. 
DriveMaster has been in business since 1952 and is one of the oldest family-owned and operated adaptive mobility equipment dealers in the United States. They have also fully adapted two Jeep Cherokees for me in the past and have become valued friends through the process. So, fasten your seatbelts. We'll be right back. God, that was cheesy, but I couldn't resist. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin, the radio play-by-play announcer for the New Jersey Devils. If you like what you're hearing from John McAlevey on today's show, then you'll want to check out more Sports Now's podcast. You know, John's a huge sports fan, and each week he joins me and Steve Titchener for a spirited roundtable discussion on what's going on in sports on both sides of the Hudson. Our podcast can be heard at moresportsnow.com, but also on iTunes, Spotify, and iHeart. I hope you'll check us out. And welcome back to the show. Remember, if you're looking for all things Quadcast, you can find that on my website, which is www.quadcast.org. And you can listen to the show each week on a number of podcast hosts. They are Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio Podcast, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. So, there's no shortage of places where you can find the Quadcast podcast. Joining me now is not only a friend and fellow sports fanatic, but one heck of a driving instructor. Rich Need, thanks for coming on and welcome to the show. Well, thanks, John. It's really uh, quite a pleasure to uh, be on this show with you and get a chance to speak to you a little, hopefully a little bit about sports, but a lot about driving. We will de- we will definitely get to some sports, I promise that. But why don't we start from the top? What made you want to be a driving instructor? Well, I don't know if it was something that I wanted to do off the top, John. I mean, I have a, a, a my degree is in phys ed and health education, and I had a secondary in traffic safety. And I started out way back when in the... Uh, Late 70s, I was teaching at North Plainfield High School doing uh, health ed, phys ed, and driver education there. And uh, I enjoyed always the traffic safety end of things. And I had also had some experience working at David Burley Regional High School in Kenilworth with, with kids with that were challenged physically and mentally. Okay. And uh, I got a chance to see one of the instructors there, Jim Hagen, working with a person with hand controls in the car. And I never thought it would be my profession, but I had a touch to it. And that's where where it led me to. At some point, I always I had lost the job at North Plainfield only because of they were doing a reduction in force at that time. And so I had always wanted to get back in education. And I saw this ad for Kessler Institute, and I applied for the job. And that's 34 years later. Unbelievable. 34. So you started right out of high school, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, so what, aren't you kind, John? Aren't yes. you kind? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, Rich, what type of training is needed for one to become a licensed driving instructor to work with folks who have had disabilities? Well, basically, to become a licensed driving instructor in the state of New Jersey, you basically just have to have uh, you know, uh, a degree, you have to pass a test, you have to pass a vision test, a written test, and then you're able to become a driving instructor. To work with people with, with disabilities, there's really no clear-cut path for that. Um, so what happens is you, you become someone who does a lot of research and a lot of observation of therapists, doctors, and I belong to an organization called 
the Association for Driver Rehabilitation Specialists. It's called ADED. And every year they have conferences in continuing education. And so I started going to the conferences and meeting other professionals that do the type of work that I do. And, you know, you start broadening your horizons. Now, my health education background really helped me a lot with the medical end of this job. And then my my mechanical background helped me also with the adaptations and modifications that we see. And then my traffic safety background helped me out with the um, with the law and the uh, training part of things. So I had those three components that really kind of formed me into what I consider a pretty good driving rehabilitation specialist. ADED certifies us, so every year you got to get 30 continuing hours of education to remain a CDRS, which is a Certified Driver Rehabilitation Specialist. And so every year, every three years, I have to go in and recertify, and uh, you keep going that way. Okay. So you're really up on things. Um, you got to stay on the cutting edge, I take it, right? I try to stay on the cutting edge of things. Uh, things change sometimes quickly. Some things don't change. Some things have been the same for 34 years. Some things change every year. Vehicles change. Right. Uh, wheelchairs change. Things change uh, that way, and, it, and it, you do have to stay on the cutting edge. And one of the ways that you do that is through ADED. And, you know, the computer's a wonderful thing now. You can go to many websites now and just study companies' products and, and get a feel for what they might or might not do for your clients. Sure. Now, Rich, being a Jersey guy, um, was Kessler Institute something, uh, a place that you thought that would be a great fit for you and the whole driving thing? John, to be perfectly honest with you, when I first saw the job opportunity here at Kessler, I had never heard of Kessler before. Unbelievable. So, you know what I mean? Let's face it, many of our clients even, they don't even know we exist until you're thrust into this world where you need the assistance that a place like Kessler can, can provide. Yeah. And so, you know, none of us anticipate these changes in our lives and things like that. Sure. So uh, I had never really heard of it, but it only took me a short period of time, maybe six months to a year where I realized that it was a special place. Uh, I realized that I really enjoyed what I was doing. The shoe really fit both as working for Kessler and for doing the type of work that I do. Yeah, and the commute wasn't too bad either, was it? Sweet commute. Every I'll tell you, every day, 25 minutes, no traffic for the most part. Yeah. You know, you get upset if there's a 15-minute wait. That's not too bad. <laughs> no, no. Rich, take us back 34 years when you first started. What was the industry like then? Well, you know... Uh, when I first came in, the the industry was was covering most of the things that we cover now as far as hand controls or low-tech adaptations and vehicle modifications. They've just become more sophisticated over the years. And back in those days, uh, ADED, which is the organization that certifies people like myself, uh, was just getting going. Um, there was no real requirement for any kind of a certification at that time. There were just people like myself, many of us traffic safety backgrounds, whereas today it's moved on to more therapy backgrounds. Um, and, and we were out there and we were just plying our trade and trying to feed off one another, learn about things, uh, talk to people like Peter Ruprecht at DriveMaster and some of the other vendors that are out there and just pick their minds, do my research, and do my job. And 
learn as you went. It really was a learn as you go type profession at that time. Yes. And tell us about the type of folks that you work with. I know myself being spinal cord injured, but um, what other do you work also with folks that have had amputations and also strokes? And and if so, how is working with someone from each one of those categories different behind the wheel? Well, you know, John, yeah. I mean, I, I always say nowadays uh, there's probably more a, a few diagnoses that I haven't heard of over the years that I haven't worked with, uh, but the man, the vast majority back in the day was stroke, spinal cord injury, amputation. Now, as we've gone over the years, we're now dealing a lot with the young people on the autistic spectrum. We're dealing a lot with the other end of that, the older fo- folks that are coming in to be assessed because they're dealing with, you know, disease process that are affecting their aging and or just to see if they're still fit to drive. So, uh, you know, those type of things are 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 out there now as well. And, and in fact, a big part of our business. So if you're working with, you know, and take spinal cord, for instance, I mean, if I took five C5 individuals and put them next to one another, I might have five different driving scenarios with them because spinal cord is so different as an individual thing. Yeah. Uh, depending on the lesion and, and, and the injury levels and, and whether they're complete or incomplete and whatnot. And when you're dealing with folks that, let's say, have had a stroke, when you're dealing with equipment, it's usually low-tech equipment like a left foot gas pedal or steering devices and things like that. You know, you go to, to traumatic brain injury, which is another big thing that we work with. Sometimes those folks don't need any adaptations or modifications, but you're really kind of working with them working with their processing of the environment? Are they attentive to the task? Do they have attention to detail? And things like that. So that goes on that way. And amputees can be anything. You know, amputees could be a left foot pedal. They could be different types of steering devices. It could be hand controls and things like that. But that's usually a low-tech environment, too, depending on the individual and, and, and what we're dealing with. There's just so many different cases, it's hard to pinpoint it. Yeah, there's no... Uh... There's no one-size-fits-all, right, Rich? Yeah, the fam- my famous, or not my famous, but my favorite uh, saying is there's no cookie cutter here. Okay. You know, there's just no cookie cutter. Everybody's a little bit different. Yep. Now, I can remember uh, back, I just had my injurversary, as they like to call it. Uh, it was August 19, was my 28 years after I took my spill. And so I can recall... Ah. When uh, when I was kind of able to get my sea legs under me, uh, when I was able to regain the ability to walk and, you know, be able to use my arms a little bit and sort of figure out what my new world was all about, I knew that I wanted to drive. And I wasn't quite sure whether that was going to be something that I could do or not. And I don't recall the exact details of how it all went down. So could you please take me and our listeners through what the process is for a patient to be assessed for driving? Well, first of all, John, I got to tell you, when I saw you coming down the hall, I just about tried to duck out the exit, <laughs> but, but I couldn't do it. But no, I'm only kidding you, you. You were one of my most prized students. You did an excellent job. You were motivated to remain motivated to this day. So awesome. that was a great experience. And then when I found out you were a sports guy, it was all over. Yes, but it was all over. Let me tell you a little bit. I mean, in order for someone, we, we are dealing with the medical model of driving in our program. So we're always dealing with someone that has some kind of a medical situation that's affecting their life and possibly affecting their driving. Uh, so we're always going to wind up needing to get a prescription from a doctor to get that person into the program. 
the doctor has to be on board and has to feel that the person may be a, an appropriate candidate for driving. And so we we get the prescription, we get some some background information, you know, for for uh, for our own knowledge. Uh, if there's a potential for third party payers, we try to set the clients up with third party payers such as DVR or workers comp. Uh, back in the day, you used to be able to get some money out of the automotive insurances, but not so much anymore. We want to make sure that they get as much uh, funding as is available to them. And then, you know, once we get all that stuff in, in uh, order, we're bringing them in for an evaluation. And we start out with an evaluation. It's a two-part eval. It's clinical in the beginning where we check the vision, the reaction time. We check for any special needs the client might have. We give them maybe a little pen and paper for cognition if it's indicated. We do some reaction time. And after that, it's on road. And that's where, that's where you know, the, the bread is buttered, so to speak. You get yeah. the person in the vehicle. You set them up, hopefully, with something that's going to be around what they need. We don't have every piece of equipment, but we have a lot of things that we can play around with. And hopefully, we have success and get them to move the car, stop, go, bring us back alive, and we move on from there. Sure. Now, what types of vehicles do you have for patients to drive, and how do you decide which one that they'll be evaluated in? Well, sometimes it's very easy. I mean, sometimes if it's going to be someone who needs a drive from a wheelchair, we know they're going to be needing a van. So, uh, well, I should I shouldn't say that because sometimes wheelchair drivers can transfer. But let's say it's a a high level wheelchair driver, say a C five six wheelchair driver, they're going to need to drive from their chair. So we have a large full size van and a minivan where we're able to accommodate that, where we we're able to get the person behind the wheel in their wheelchair and then set up driving systems around them. It could be a low tech driving system. It could be a high tech or a or electronic or digital driving systems, depending on what their needs are. Uh, and then in some cases, someone's able to transfer into a sedan. So we have a sedan. We have a an older sedan now. It's a 2010 Chevy Impala. We're working on trying to – we were about ready to buy a 2020 Toyota Camry, and then COVID hit and changed the way things work in the hospital these days. Yes. But anyhow, we have a sedan, and we have two vans that we uh, are able to put our clients into. And we can accommodate most individuals. There's sometimes there's someone that's a little too large in a chair that might be trouble for us. And there's sometimes there's people that are a little bit too small. We do work with short stature individuals. And sometimes they might be even a little bit too small for the pedal extensions and things that we can provide in our vehicle. And they're gonna need more of a custom fit vehicle for them to work in. Sure. Now, Rich, you mentioned COVID. How has this pandemic affected your job? Well, you know, John, I was very fortunate that Kessler was able to keep me working through the pandemic, but the driving program actually shut down back in March. Yeah, that's March what 18th. I figured. Yeah, I figured that they you know, cut it, cut it stopped. It cut us down. We had to close shop. It was just too dangerous at the time. And it was until the end of July of this year, I think it was probably around the July 20-something, 25th or so, that we decided to reopen the program. It looked like things had calmed down a little bit. So we've been open just a little over four or five weeks now. And uh, so we're back and we're flying. I mean, a lot of people that we have are kind of hesitant to come out now and, and do what they would want to do in a driving program. But we have a lot of folks uh, that want to come in, and, and we're trying to accommodate them as best we can. And there's a lot of new referrals coming in as well. So it seems like people really are tired of being cooped up in the house, and they want to get out and drive. They sure do. Uh, so, 
when we first opened, it only was myself here. So I usually have another two workers with me. So my one of my workers is coming back next week. So hopefully we'll be able to start whittling down that waiting list a little. But the pandemic, I mean, has changed how we do our business. I mean, every vehicle now gets sanitized before and after each client. Our office where we do the clinical sanitized before and after each client. So it's a lot of time being spent doing the sanitizing things and trying to keep, you know, the, the COVID from coming into our our program, into our hospital. We've yeah. been very, very blessed and very fortunate that people have been very diligent with it and we're having great success with that. Yes. But, uh, you know, it, it's changed. I mean, we're wearing masks in the vehicle, wearing eye gear in the vehicle, uh, that type of stuff. You know, isn't it funny? I joke around with with the gals upstairs. I'm in therapy right now, OT and PT. And as you mentioned, they're sanitizing everything. When I work with these pegs or with blocks, they call somebody over right when I'm done and they're like scrubbing these things down with almost hazmat suits. And it's almost like, geez, how dirty were we before? You know, we just would, you know, pick them up and throw them back in, in the box. It's not like they're scrubbing some it stuff is. down. It's funny. You know, John, it's, it's funny that you say that, but you think about the way we've did, done things before, and oh. you wonder why we all aren't aren't having caught something or other serious, but uh, yeah. this bugs serious business, and, and until they get a good handle on it, I think this is the way we're going to be living our lives for a little while. I agree with you 100%. Rich, how about, how often do you recommend someone not to drive? John, that happens quite a bit when we're working with our older clients, uh, the aging driver, uh, a lot of times the families are very concerned about mom and dad, or, you know, they're concerned about their drive and they're noticing that the car is a little banged up or they're not, they're not as coherent as they used to be. So they bring them in and, uh, you know, we're also getting the doctor's diagnosis of, uh, Alzheimer's dementia. And, you know, when we get the, uh, Driving safety recommendation, we know that they're bringing them in because there's some things going on in their world that that have changed them and changed them probably not for the better. So uh, when we're working with those clients, it's quite often. Yeah, There are some times when I'm working with people that drive from their wheelchair, let's say, uh, that we can't accommodate them. They don't have the physical ability to operate certain systems. Uh, there's an occasion that that person may not be a driving candidate. And a lot of times with spinal cord, something that will prevent someone from driving is spasms. Yeah. Oh, and if they have uncontrolled spasms uh, that the med- the medications can't control and whatnot, then that's dangerous driving. I've had a few instances over the years where spasms have created some interesting situations. Yes. And, uh, you know, then the person says, this is the first time I ever had them or I've had them controlled and today I forgot my meds or something. And I'm saying, okay, well... <laughs> That's part of the day, you know, but thankfully I'm here to talk about it still. Yes, no doubt. Now, speaking of interesting situations, you have to go down that rather large hill for those folks who are not familiar with Kessler Institute in West Orange. It sits atop a, a beautiful hill. And so coming down that hill is is Rich sitting in the passenger seat with folks who have had spinal cord injuries and strokes and amputations. And for the most part, they're getting back behind the wheel for the first time. So first of all, how harrowing is that? And, and secondly, have you ever been out with someone where you've had a fender bender or some sort Sort of an accident. Oh, sure, John. I mean, you know, first of all, we're very blessed here at Kessler. We have a huge campus, 
bigger than it was back in the day now that they've opened up and the new wings and stuff. So we have an area to drive. It's almost like a driving range where you can drive first and kind of get some of the kinks out, let the person get used to feeling the vehicle moving and stuff. So by the time we tackle that big hill, usually we have a lot of the kinks worked out. Sometimes not, though. And, I mean, you know, you can go down that hill, and it can be an interesting ride. I mean, I, you know, no, I, I'm thinking sometimes I have to go to my chiropractor at the end of the day going down that hill, <laughs> oh, you know. Uh, but, I mean, it can be interesting. I'll remember the, remember the first time I learned about a, a, a C5 quad requiring a chest strap when they drive. When we were going down that hill and the guy that was working here before me, we were going down with a client and I was cutting my teeth and I was sitting in the back of the van. And the, next, and the guy was using a horizontal wheel, much like yours. And the next thing you know, he's hunched over the wheel, can't steer, can't stop. Oh, and we're going down that hill and we're picking speed up and the guy's laying on the brake and finally we roll to a stop. So I found that, you know, better have a chest strap on some of these guys because when they go on the downslope, they don't have the control in the trunk and they wind up hunched over whatever and losing control of the vehicle. So I learned that lesson quick, <laughs> to say the least. But, uh, you know... If you, if you if you know coming out of the back parking lot and you go, start to go down the hill, there's that left hand turn into the outpatient parking lot. Yes, and that and that thing's banked and twisted and going up, and I call that the quad killer because <laughs> nine times out of ten, I'll have to hold that guy's shoulder up or that girl's shoulder up, even with a chest strap on, and keep him from falling over to hit me when they're going on that sharp twisted turn. So mm. we have some good things here. I mean, we're in the valley and we got these hills all over the place. I mean, I go across the street and we're up at the top of the hills and oh my God, it can be interesting. The first times can be very interesting, John, that's for sure. No doubt. Now, do you ever wind up uh, wearing your old cane football helmet um, when you're out on the course? <laughs> Sometimes I wish I had it. There's been a few times I wish I had it. There was one time we had a pretty interesting ride and I wound up hitting my head Oh but, you know, I'm very fortunate because as long as I get hit in the head, I'll be all right, you know? No doubt. But uh, uh, there, we've had some times that I wish I had my pads on for sure. <laughs> and speaking of football, let's end it this way. We said that we're we're both big sports fans. And so I'll, I'll give you a little time here to make your case on your J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. What type of a season are you looking forward to? Well, John, you know, this season is going to be very interesting for all football fans because, you know, it's really going to, it's really bizarre with this COVID and we don't know how far we're going to go and how, and what we're going to get out of it. But I'll tell you this, for the first time in a long time with the Jets, I feel very comfortable with the fact that Joe Douglas is out there running the team. Uh, their coach, Adam Gase, still has, I still have to be sold on him a little bit, but you know what? This will be a big year for him. And for Darnold, their quarterback, it's going to be a big year for him. But as the, as the Jets tend to do, there's no re, there's no receivers for him to throw to, and the offensive line is is rebuilding. And you know, it's been uh, since '69, it's been a tough tough being a Jets fan. We've had some good years, uh, but I like the way Douglas is running things. I like the kind of the, the fact that he's trying to get quality people in there. I like the fact that he's that he's not quick to pull the trigger on some of these high price guys. And uh, so I think we might be on the right path for now. Um, I think we're all banged up even before the season starts. So we'll see what happens. We open up with a very good Bills team. Uh, you know, everyone says for the first time in a long time, the Eastern Division's open. Well, I'm not writing off Bill Belichick and Cam Newton quite yet. Uh, 
Miami Dolphins had a great draft, and they're building a young team. And the Bills, with Allen at quarterback and some solid defense, it's going to be a tough division once again. Yeah, everything still goes through Foxborough, doesn't it? Bill Belichick is the guy. Well, and we're going to see you just can how build smart the road he is. Where it doesn't go that way, yeah. That would be great. And here endeth the Mike and the Mad Dog portion of the Quadcast podcast. <laughs> Rich, I want to thank you not only for guiding me through the whole driving process all those years ago, but also you took my dad through it, and I know he bent your ears off talking sports and also New York apples. So I want to thank yep. you uh, for my for myself and for Pops and for all of the people that you've you've helped get back on the road for all these 34 years. Thank you for all that you do and continue to do, and I look forward to seeing you around campus sometime soon. And John, I want to thank you for having me on today. I want to tell you it's been a blessing and a calling for me to be able to help guide the folks that I have guided towards independence through mobility and regaining that driving ability, which can make a big difference in what you can do in your lives. And I've seen some great stuff from some very challenged and very gritty people, and it's been my honor to work with them. And it will be my honor to speak with Peter Ruprecht from DriveMaster Total Mobility Center right after this commercial break. Infinite Therapy Solutions is a pediatric therapy clinic providing services in Hudson and Essex counties for five years. If your child is having difficulty with speech, motor skills, behavioral triggers, or physical movement, you can count on their exceptional therapists for help. Infinite Therapy Solutions provides physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and behavioral therapy to children ages 0 to 21. Come to a warm, professional clinic to receive the best care to help your child achieve their highest potential. My friend Hillary would be happy to answer any questions for you at 201-455-3144. They take insurances, so call to inquire. There are two locations in West Orange and Bayonne. Check out their website at infinitetherapysolutions.org. And now it is my pleasure to welcome in the aforementioned Peter Ruprecht, president of DriveMaster Total Mobility Center, which is located at 37 Daniel Road West in Fairfield, New Jersey, 07004. They can also be reached at 973 973- 808-9709. Peter, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. First of all, why don't you tell our listeners the story of how DriveMaster was founded? Okay. So in 1948, my father, uh, Alan B. Ruprecht, had polio. He had adult polio at 25 years old. It took him two years to rehab and come out of the New York hospital walking on crutches. Uh, in the meantime, he had been at Warm Springs. He was in an iron lung for six months. You know, the whole bad polio story. Yes. So he gets out of Warm Springs, uh, from Warm Springs to New Jersey. He, um, I guess he drove up a car with broomsticks, as the story goes. Unbelievable. And when he got home... He started looking around for uh, some handkerchiefs. I didn't like what was on the market, didn't like the way they operated. He invented his own, and he called it a push-pull. So he pushed for brake, pulled for gas, couldn't do two things at the same time, which he thought was a much safer way to drive a car versus the push-right angle where you could do both things at the same time. 
Was he always so, was he always a car guy, Peter? Yeah, he was. He he had um, Rutgers Engineering. He owned two gas stations before he got sick. He's in the Navy, you know, as a flyer, but he did wash out. <laughs> <laughs> he was always stateside, also. Okay. Florida. Okay. And where was the company founded? Where Where was he based? We he had a house in Montclair, New Jersey, on Valley Road, and. Uh, we turned the basement into a shop. In the meantime, before that, um, he was using his uh, outsourcing to uh, local machine shops to make up some products that he had. He also had a partner, Jim Lacey, who had broken his back in a, uh, a mine axe, mining accident. Okay. And they were partners for a couple of years, but as partnerships go, it was dissolved. Sure. So they, um, like I said, had their parts machined outside of the house. After a while, he made a machine shop in the basement. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, he's in a three-story house. He's walking on crutches, and he had to hump downstairs to the basement every night to go down and make parts, come up, and then walk upstairs to his bedroom, which was on the second floor. Wow. Yep. Where so, there's a will, there's a way, right? Yep. You got it. And how about yourself then, now? Were you were you always a car guy too? And uh, watching your dad tinkering and and whatnot was that something that uh, you thought, hey, listen, I'd like to get involved in this as well? Well, my brother and myself kind of he's my brother was two years younger than me, mm-hmm. and um, as we grew older, we started helping around with the machine shop and handing my dad tools because on the weekends he would install hand controls out in the front driveway for his customers. Unbelievable. Yep. So we, you know, run them parts. And as we grew older, we learned, you know. Sure. Sure. And how long did your father run the business? He ran until he passed. He died at uh, 61 okay. from post-polio syndrome. Okay. And so, um, uh, Peter, when did the company... Uh, when did you guys open up your business in Fairfield? I know you're in, I think it's your second location in Fairfield because the first car that you adapted for me was in a different location, not too far from where you are right now on Daniel Road. But when did you uh, make the move to Fairfield? That was 15, well, it started at the house in Montclair, became the shop and also the install area. And in 72, we were cutting up Chevy vans to make them wheelchair accessible. We drop floors and lifts and power doors and that kind of stuff. And the town got pissed when they saw 10 Chevy vans lined up in our driveway. <laughs> oh, boy. And they said, okay, get out. Yeah. Oh, that's So funny. the first shop was in Passaic, the 3,000-square-foot uh, building in Passaic. Mm-hmm. And that's where we started. We were there for probably, oh, five years, I guess. And then we moved from there to Patterson. Mm-hmm. We bought a... 48,000 square foot building. We took up 15,000 square feet and we're there for 15 years. And that's, he died at just about at the end. Okay. And uh, my mother took over and I had to move the business to Fairfield, which was our first location at 10,000 square feet. And all this time, you know, we're inventing products and, and, and designing products, manufacturing products for not only our local retail people, but also. We had, in the meantime, or the interim, had started a wholesale business where we were selling products around the country. Sure. Dealers. Sure. Now, Peter. That's when the dealership, the, the, the dealers started to become popular, and because 
back in the beginning, a lot of people were coming to us to get their work done. Mm-hmm. Now, Peter, for folks that out there that don't know what adaptive mobility equipment means, how would you describe this for them? I'd say a um, biggest thing was the um, folks in wheelchairs that wanted to drive a ve- drive a motor vehicle. They, you know, they were having trouble getting out of their wheelchair, which was my father's problem, and that's we made him the first van driver from a wheelchair mm-hmm. in and out by himself, and that was about 1972. As more and more people saw that, I mean, we were, we were on television, and you know, a TV crew came, and I forget the guy that came out. But anyway, did a nice article there on on the TV, and you know, this brought us more customers. So the more customers that came with different disabilities, we had to invent things, products to get them to drive, mm-hmm. which was our goal. Mm-hmm. You know, get everybody to drive. My father, my father was a paraplegic, so he had easy stuff. I mean, his van was easy. But then we had quads coming. We had amputees coming. We had polio people coming at the time also, and dwarfs, you know, short people. And we came up with products for all of them. What would you say are the most common adaptations that DriveMaster is asked to make on cars? The biggest thing is still a wheelchair driver. Still the drop it's still, it's still a challenge. Because the vehicles have now switched from uh, hydraulic and easy electronics to uh, electric steering and uh, the, the, the computer can and lens systems, which is not adaptable to cutting mm-hmm. and cutting the wire harnesses and adding switches like we used to do back in the day. Mm-hmm. Are, uh, are there certain vehicles that are easier to adapt than others? Not really. Every every vehicle has a challenge. You know, every client has a challenge that we need to work through. Mm-hmm. So it's still a challenge. I mean, the, the, but the majority of vehicles that we do are all these drop flare minivans. Yeah. So there have been, you know, the, there's three major manufacturers or two major manufacturers. They cut the floor. It's all FM VSS certified with the rollovers and the crash worthiness. They have the drop floor, 12 to 14 inches. Power door, a power ramp. The two front seats are—they'll come out. They're, they're removable, so that you can put a wheelchair passenger on the right and a wheelchair driver on the left. Yeah. See, I'm sort of different in the fact that you I sure can get are, out. buddy. Yeah. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. That's an easy. <laughs> You're way my to put hero, it. man. Oh, You're kidding me? Boy. When you first came to our shop, I yeah. remember that. Oh gosh, I, I can, yeah. I can. I, it's like I tell people, Peter, that I'm able to get up and I can walk wherever I want to go. I just can't do a bloody thing when I get there because my arms don't work. But <laughs> yep. you know, I didn't need a van and I didn't want to have to drive a van. You know, there's kind of like I that remember stigma. that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and so I wanted to, you know, just drive like a regular dude car, and I wanted to get a Jeep. And I remember yep. bringing one up and saying, what can we do with this? Can can yeah. can we get me behind the wheel? And you guys said, yes, not only can we do it, but we're going to do it. Tell tell our listeners about the horizontal steering that you put into my car. So we removed the steering column from the Jeep and where the tilting mechanism is, which is right in front of the dashboard, we take that off and take it apart. And then we modify what you call our horizontal steering column. And we added on to the uh, original steering column. We made your steering box easier to turn with another modification. And we put a backup system in so that if something ever happened in the steering, you lost steering, the uh, steering would automatically come on. And I think we put an electric shifter in for you. Yeah. And maybe a couple of buttons to run the horn or the dimmer switch. 
and we put them where you could operate them in the manner in which, you know, your arms could do what they could do. And it was a cool project, man. It was. Now, how common was that? Had you done many of those beforehand and have you done many of them since? Well, yeah, that's a viable product still today. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe two a month mm-hmm. back then in the day and maybe it's down to one a month. But anymore, the hydraulic systems have gone away in the motor vehicles, and they're all electric. So we have a new electric horizontal steering or remote steering is what we call it because you can put it anywhere you anywhere you can want it one in the vehicle or wherever the client is situated. Yes, but it's all electrical. It runs, you know, with the car, okay, with the vehicle. Now my car is 13 years old now, and I'm uh, I don't really go all that far, so I just crossed 70,000 miles on it. I just had it in mm-hmm. for a checkup, and uh, my car guy tells me everything looks a okay with it. So I'm not quite in the market for some new wheels. But what sort of situation am I looking for once I do get a new car? Um, will it kind of be the same deal that you've done with the first two, or will there be changes with how um, you'll have to go about doing it and how I'll be driving it? Well, you'll basically have the horizontal, but it'll be electronic instead of hydraulic. Okay. So, now, is that and easier you'll get, for you? You'll get sticker shock, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can imagine. It's, uh, yep. it's, uh, it's not cheap, right, Peter? No. No, it's not. Well, we're going to have to pass around a hat after, after we get it. off here and see if to a, a GoFundMe or something. Yeah. <laughs> in, in that respect, what, what are we talking about? What, what is something like, would something like that run? Just your steering system will run you about 20K. Oh, my goodness. Yep. Oh, my goodness. So I have to, yep. I have to continue doing the podcast here. I got to get there some more go, advertisers that will kind of come on. Well, I'm glad that I don't have to uh, do anything quite yet. Peter, how about this um, COVID-19 pandemic has affected everyone and every business? How has DriveMaster fared through this? Well, we've been open because we were an essential, they classified us as, as essential business. However, I had to cut quite a bit of the staff. Um who have a couple have since been brought back over the last month, I believe. We did get our, you know, COVID money, which helps and helped. Uh, but sales have been down for the first six months. Not terribly, but terrible enough that I can't get a loan at the bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been rough, right, for, for yep. everybody. How about yep. for you in particular? Oh, they're keeping me home because of my age and my uh, lung issues. And they don't want me around where I might catch something that I don't need. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the good things that uh, DriveMaster being a family business. Why don't you talk about your family and how they not only work with you, uh, but they've been by your side for all of this? Yeah, I got my oldest daughter, Tina, that takes care of the uh, financials and scheduling. That's kind of like a dual role in there because my she's not my oldest daughter. I'm sorry. Cheryl is my oldest daughter. She takes care of the, the payables and also answers the phone, does some scheduling, does some rentals because I don't have that staffing in the office. Dean takes care of the financials and PJ takes care of the sales and runs the shop. Peter, what, uh, what sort of changes have occurred over the years in the mobility equipment dealer industry? The biggest thing is uh, this one gentleman out of Ohio started buying up dealerships mobility dealers. And I think he's up to about 120 now. And he's also, he also did get some investors in. And I think he diversified himself a little bit because he's now the CEO instead of the president. And he's just kept buying all the local mom and pop dealerships. So now they're all corporate stores. 
He's sort of the Amazon of of your business. Huh? He sure is. Yeah, oh, he sure is. Yep. So, so what does the future hold for small to mid-sized mobility equipment dealers such as yourself? Either keep trucking or go be corporate. So is that how many choices? Yeah. So that's something down the road you have to you have to you know make that decision at some point. Is that what you're Absolutely. saying? Absolutely. Yes. Wow. Okay. So well, yep. hopefully you'll still be, uh, still be around when I bring my new wheels up, and uh, there you go. Enver and I the boys so. can can work on it with me. Peter, how yep. have uh, have you been able to meet the challenges that the newer computer-based vehicles present when building one for a client? Oh, in 2010, I hooked up with a, a company in Texas. Was on the par mm. with DriveMaster. However, they had a, a, a large engineering staff, electronic engineering staff. Mm-hmm. And I worked it out with him where he'd make the products uh, to my specifications, and then I would market them. Okay. So anything like the electric steering is one. You know, we can we modify. We started out modifying Toyota minivans with electric steering, and uh, because he had a remoted horizontal steering, which was hydraulically based, I said we need to switch that over to electronically based, which which he did. We added our own motor and then controlled the motor mm-hmm. in the beginning. But now the way the uh, OEMs have come out, their computer system does everything in the whole vehicle. And we've been fortunate enough to learn what they did and have coexisted with the vehicle. So it's not, we're not like hacking it. We coexist. It knows where it's like a computer. We're like part of the family. It knows we're in there. When we ask it to do something, it does it. You know, like raise the windows or turn the wipers on or, you know, put the Bluetooth on. So it's pretty cool. Absolutely. Pretty cool. And now how does the relationship between the modifier and installer, evaluator, and the third-party payers work? Well, the evaluator, well, your counselor is the first line of, of uh, defense, of offense. And then they get you into your, uh, you know, once you pass all your tests, you go see an evaluator like Rich Need or there's a bunch of them around the country. Sure. That are certified for it. Uh, Rich happens to be our local guy, one of our local guys. And um, they'll go through the process of assessing you as a client and deciding and determining what you can drive, how you're going to drive your motor vehicle, what motor vehicle you're going to get. You know, they go through the whole process. Then they'll write up the script, and then the client can take it to his paying agency if he has one or go out and solicit uh, bids for the job and pick his own vendor. Yeah. You know, we had Rich on right before you, uh, so that when you hear, uh, listen back to this, you're going to hear Rich. Uh, tell us about the relationship you've had with him over the years. It's, he was like, you know, we treated him as a friend and we always got along. Uh, we consult with each other on different uh, clients. Uh, I helped him with his uh, evaluation vehicles, you know, his cars, his vans. You know, we helped with the, in, in the purchasing process. Gave him good discounts, and uh, it's just been a good relationship. He's terrific. He's been not only a great, you know, driving instructor, but he's been a real good friend to myself. And uh, when my dad was uh, getting back out on the road again, uh, Rich has been terrific. I guess lastly, Peter, can you tell myself and our listeners, what is the next big thing that uh, that you see on the horizon for adaptive vehicles? Well, in our industry, we're talking about self-driving vehicles. Oh, boy. Yep. That's something that's... Uh, 
that's really a thing, huh? For for folks that have had a, um... it's really a thing. There's actually people working on it, and um, that's going to be the next best, the next biggest thing for this industry. It's self drive, self drive vehicles. Wow. And what do you think? Something like you want to talk about twenty grand for the steering system? Have, what would something like that be? I don't. I don't even know, and I wouldn't have a guess. Uh, I think they're going to try and make it as economically as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, would that be something that the the car deal uh, the dealers do themselves, Cadillacs and you know Audi or whatever the whatever the brand is that they would do, or that's something that you guys would do? I believe. Whoever comes up with it is going to be the key, and they will be the the manufacturer of the vehicle. Wow. So that's yep. really a thing. Uh, it's been talked over the last couple of years about it. Yeah. Well, that scares me. I don't know whether I would want to get in, you know, behind the sitting passenger seat or whatever of a car that's driving <laughs> itself. What do you think about that idea? It scares me, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's no doubt. It scares me, too. Plus, it would put people out of out of a job they wouldn't have to adapt cars anymore right you just buy one and it would drive yourself maybe we're hoping it doesn't do that yeah that's hopefully and not everybody's going to buy a self-drive vehicle you know so there's still going to be the folks Mm. that need hand controls and you know, other adaptations to get themselves mobile. Well, Peter, I want to thank you for coming on with me today and shedding some light on what it's like to have a car adapted and and how often folks go in to do that. And for people out there that want to get in touch with Peter and the good folks at DriveMaster, I tell you, they've, they've adapted two cars for me. They've become trusted friends through the years, and they do terrific work. They're located at 37 Daniel Road West in Fairfield, New Jersey, 07004, and can be reached at 973-808-9709. Peter, thanks again for adapting my cars, uh, becoming a friend for all these years, and coming on with me today. Check out the website too, www.drivemastermobility.com. Well, I hope you've learned as much as I have about not only how to get back on the road following a spinal cord injury, but what sort of adaptations can be made to your vehicle that might make the transition easier. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests, Rich Need, Certified Driver Rehabilitation Specialist at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in West Orange, and Peter Ruprecht, President of DriveMaster Total Mobility Center, for joining me. I'd also like to say a special thank you to my dear friend Dawn Texas, who was once a certified driving instructor herself, for feeding me some terrific questions. Thanks, pal. There will not be a podcast next week, as we will take a week off after this hard charge. Is there someone you would like to hear from? If so, please give me a shout. I am always looking for future guests and can use all the help I can get. Shout out to Chris Parapesco at Sound Lounge in New York City. I appreciate your mixing the show for me each and every week, my friend. And I hope you and your families have a great Labor Day weekend and that you'll join us in two weeks for the next Quadcast. Once again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care.